What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. What is crack-a-lackin', Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli, coming at you this time without my co-host, Andrew D. Bailey. As we continue to try and up the content we're giving you to three to four episodes per week, we're going to dive into some of your questions once again. We'll also have some news roundupping to partake in. Before we get started, just the usual housekeeping notes. Please, please, pretty please, with Sugar on Top, continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on iTunes. That's the best way to show that you like the pod and to help us out and that you're enjoying these extra episodes per week as we continue to work through the kinks of them, of course. Uh, You can provide constructive criticism. We are always open to it. We read every single review. Also, you can subscribe, rate, and review wherever else you're getting your podcasts from. Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, whatever. We are ubiquitous. We are everywhere. If you want to be a superhero, though, you can, of course, listen to us wherever you prefer to, but then also go on iTunes, search for us, subscribe, rate, review us. Again, it really helps us. The best thing you can obviously do is subscribe and download all of our episodes. That's what's most appreciated. If you've done all that, recommend us. Retweet the promos that we have on Twitter. Tell family, friends, frenemies, office people that you know, acquaintances, randos on the street. They will thank you later, we think, probably, we promise. Who knows? You can also help us by following us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. You can follow our YouTube channel as well, youtube.com slash Hardwood Knox. You can follow Andy on Twitter at Andrew D. Bailey. You can follow me at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. Follow the Blue Wire Podcast Network on Twitter as well, at Blue Wire Pods. That helps us out too. Those are a ton of ways you can help us out, so please continue to indulge all of them. Just listen to these requests or something, whatever, what have you. Moving on, shout out to our sponsor this week, betonline.ag. You'll be hearing from them in a little bit. That's another way to help out the podcast. Use the promo code that we are about to give you later in the episode. With all of that stuff now out of the way, we get to this week's episode. We're going to begin with the Fast Five. Let's start here with Aaron Gordon not winning the dunk contest. He had jumped over friggin' Taco Fall, who is seven foot five inches tall. That was not the best dunk of the night, but you can't give that dunk a 47 when you gave Dwight Howard's Kobe Bryant tribute dunk a 49. Some of the other dunks throughout the contest, while great, were worse than that. And this is the second time that Aaron Gordon has been robbed, and he's now says that he's not going to partake in the dunk contest again, which is is kind of a shame, but he absolutely should have won. However, if you want to argue that Derek Jones Jr. had a better collection of dunks throughout the contest, I think there's a case to be made there. But again, the logic just doesn't line up uh, that Gordon's dunk, when he cleared Taco Fall, basically ends up with a 47 it just doesn't track. There needs to be, I know it's hard in the moment, but there needs to be some some better logistics for the contest there. You can probably also avoid the quasi-controversy by maybe not having former teammates uh, rating uh, on the judge panel. The Dwayne Wade, Derek Jones Jr. stuff is bizarre. He, again, was not the only one who gave Aaron Gordon a nine on that taco fall dunk. 
but again, that's just something that the NBA could have avoided by, hey, you know, D-Wade played with Derek Jones Jr. last year. Maybe we don't have him as one of the judges. Moving on, as we get to the second element of this Fast Five that we're actually trying to keep fast for a change, Kyrie Irving was voted as the vice president of the National Basketball Players Association. He is replacing Pau Gasol, whose three-year term was up. He will be involved, presumably, in the next round of CBA negotiations. That should be fun. I think this does speak, though, to the discrepancy of how he's viewed around the league uh, compared to how he's viewed in the media and probably by his former teammates, I would think, at this point. But that's just an interesting uh, anecdote and the fact that he was voted as, as VP. Maybe something to monitor. Moving forward, you can also get your jokes off on Twitter and tag me in them. I would be more than happy to read them. We have our items three and four kind of combine the Spurs and the Rockets. We'll start with the Spurs for item number three. They have agreed to a buyout with Damari Carroll per ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski. They signed him for three years and $21 million with $1.4 million guaranteed in the final year of that deal. This just happened over the offseason. He was part of the sign-in trade uh, where they dumped Davis Bertans to the Wizards essentially for nothing, which was supposed to clear the way for Marcus Morris, who then about-faced into signing a one-year deal with the Knicks. That was not a great summer for the Spurs, in hindsight. They really didn't have control over what happened with Marcus Morris. I get that. But to just give away Davis Bertans and then commit multiple years, even though the third year is partially guaranteed, there's still that fully guaranteed second year at $6.7 million to Damari Carroll, and he ends up playing in 15 games, shooting 31% from three. He does have knee issues, but he's fallen behind basically everyone in the forward rotation, Trey Lyles, Rudy Gay, the like. That's not the greatest look. And then to add the Marcus Morris stuff on top of that, it's just, it's rough. And Davis Bertans is out there living it up in, in Washington. The Rockets, as our item number four, they are signing Damari Carroll after he clears waivers, so they're expected to, also per Woj, and as well as the Athletics and reporting there. They're also signing Jeff Green to a 10-day contract. They are steering hard into their microball model. What I'm very interested to see here is, one, can Damari Carroll really play? Is he just going to replace the Tabo Cephalosia minutes? Can his shooting improve? Is he is he healthy enough to stay on the court? Could he possibly play a bigger role than than we expect? We tend to really just trumpet these midseason buyout acquisitions in real time, and then they don't end up making a major difference, specifically when you look ahead to the postseason. I do think he's someone, if healthy, though, that could really help them out and is going to help them, them switch. Again, he has to be healthy, though. That's really the, the key. As far as Jeff Green goes, I would expect him to play some reps at small ball five over the next 10 days. Uh, He was waived by the Jazz, never really got going there. But when he was with the Wizards last year, they did experiment with him at center. He ended up logging 801 possessions per cleaning the glass at the five, during which time Washington Post a 121.3 offensive rating, an effective field goal percentage of 57.4%, which ranked in the 97th percentile. They were just fireballs on that end of the floor. However, you're giving up a ton defensively, and they were they were killed on that end of the floor, gave up 114.3 points per possession. So they were still net positive overall. That, however, is still just something to monitor. Can they get they have P.J. Tucker, that small ball five. Are they going to find minutes from from someone else there that they can really carry into the playoffs? And Jeff Green potentially could be that guy. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. Our final item of the Fast Five, and perhaps the most notable one, is that John Beeline is expected to leave the Cleveland Cavaliers, be it soon, before you've listened to this podcast, or by the end of, of the season. This is from reporting 
uh, from Adrian Wojnarowski and then also over at The Athletic. Been a very tumultuous year for John Beeline, who seems like he's finally starting to show the, or not finally, but he is has been showing the wear and tear when you look at some of the quotes he's delivered over the past couple months, uh, just relative to his transition to the NBA. It has not been controversy-free. The Athletic had in December that players were already growing frustrated with Beeline's coaching style, uh, specifically his focus on the fundamentals, again, per the Athletic. Uh, there was the whole thing with Kevin Love where he was unhappy that they couldn't get the ball to him in the post and he just went and and basically took it from Colin Sexton that seemed like a a show uh, an act against the way John Beeline was coaching there was also uh, John Beeline's word slip I guess you want to call it Uh, he said the word thugs to his team that they were defending like thugs instead of slugs Um, that was something else that created unnecessary discussion for the Cavaliers I you know I honestly I don't know. It seems like maybe that's a a slip that could happen. Slugs and thugs are kind of close, uh, and you can say that someone defended like a slug, I suppose, but a lot of people who are more ingrained into the coaching aspect of the NBA have told me that they've never heard uh, that terminology used with regard to describing defense. The flip side of that would be Beeline's been in head coaching for so long that if there were these instances where he was using racially charged language, you would think that it would have come out before now. I'm not really trying to pass a verdict here. I am a Caucasian male. There are enough of enough people who look like me talking about this. So I'm, I, I, I would defer to, to everyone else. It's just another sort of unnecessary bit of drama for the Cavaliers. And I'm not trying to necessarily defend Beeline here. Uh, he was hired with with this roster basically intact, but if he was coming in expecting to rebuild, the Cavaliers really haven't helped their own case. There are still these warring timelines on the roster when you look at Tristan Thompson and Kevin Love, but then you have Colin Sexton and Darius Garland and Kevin Porter Jr. It's really confusing, and then the Cavaliers didn't necessarily help themselves there by getting Andre Drummond. I understand it because the opportunity cost was so cheap and maybe you view him as a sign and trade asset or maybe you just view him as someone who can get a ton of offensive rebounds because you have all these young guards who are going to miss a ton of shots but it it didn't do a a great deal for their long-term clarity and maybe he's just not the best fit for this organization moving forward if they're hoping to be on more of an accelerated timeline and they're not going to move Kevin Love over the offseason and they plan to re-sign Andre Drummond. We'll have to wait and see there, but this will be roughly Cleveland's 16th coach over the past half decade. That's that's not entirely true, but they've gone through coaches like sticks of gum there, even during the, the time when LeBron was in Cleveland and they were making NBA Finals runs. We'll have to see if he leaves who they end up targeting uh, within that coaching search. We're now going to take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Bet Online. Bet Online, the fastest and easiest way to bet on all things sports. March Madness, the Masters, and Major League Opening Day are right around the corner. Bet Online has you covered for all your latest news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. The best part? When you do sign up, you receive a 50% welcome bonus on your initial deposit. The Wilder Fury rematch goes down this Saturday night. We can't think of a better way to wager on the fight than doing it with actual free money. Head over to betonline.ag and use our promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your 50% off welcome bonus on your first deposit. We signed up at Hardwood Knox. It's super easy, and if you're already into betting, it's a fantastic way to support this podcast. Again, that's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, when you sign up at betonline.ag. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. 
it is now time to us to get to some of your questions. We had some really good ones this time around. So without further ado, let's just dive right in. Our first question comes from Paul Dolores, Twitter handle at PAG Dolores. His question is, what does the future look like for Andre Drummond? This is probably more of a macro question for players who are pure fives. Uh, Drummond specifically, I don't know what the future holds. It does seem like there's going to be just diminished value for these types of non-floor spacing centers moving forward. I think in Drummond's case, he's probably hurt even more by the way that the NBA looks at big men now because he's just not a clear defensive anchor. Uh, is he someone who can can really switch? He hasn't played with the best guards before, and so it's understandable that he hasn't always had the best rim protection numbers, and he's been tasked with covering up too much. But simply having him on the floor is not equated to giving yourself a defensive chance. And so that's going to be a huge issue for him. His player option is going to be super interesting this summer. It's worth $28.8 million. And the more you look at it, and particularly when you view this through the lens of Cleveland deciding to acquire him at all, I kind of think that he ends up opting in. And I'm not trying to insult him here, but with the lack of cap space coupled with how the league is viewing centers that play like him, I, I struggle to find a destination that would give him more than the non-taxpayers mid-level exception annually, which would be starting at $9.8 million. He could, of course, opt out and then sign a long-term deal worth that money, but he doesn't even gar- guarantee himself an extra $15 million in that scenario over a four-year span. And so it might make more sense to see, can I opt in? Um, do do the Cavs move him? Do they keep him? Can he can he have a really good year and and maybe reboot his value a tad before a twenty twenty one free agency market that is going to be flush with more talent but but also more cap space? The other thing to think of here is that as we struggle to find suitors, one of the most obvious ones is now gone in the Atlanta Hawks because they acquired Clint Capella at the trade deadline. And so if if he's in Cleveland next year, it's going to be a pivotal season. The end of this year is going to be critical to see how his value turns. It, it always only takes one team, and the Cavaliers can sign and trade him somewhere else if he does opt out. I just don't know which team th- that would be. And once more, this, this doesn't really have anything to do with the Rockets, who are, who are more on the extreme side of the spectrum with experimenting with small ball. However, the league is just getting away from these pure five types, and Andre Drummond is arguably suffering right now more so than, than anyone else just because you, you look at the free agency decision he has at hand uh, he's not only potentially entering the open market, he just has that huge player option. And so it's easier for him to and his agent to perhaps misread the market if they if they take that gamble. Our second question comes from Miroslav Cook. I apologize if I'm butchering that pron- pronunciation. We should really know this now. So maybe hit us with a, a phonetic pronunciation, Miroslav, on Twitter, uh, just because you are a, a regular question deliverer. Twitter handle for him is at MCUKMF. His question is both interesting and perhaps a little bit random. What would be more unstoppable, LeBron James and Anthony Davis or Luka Doncic and Nikola Jokic? I don't want to say I don't know. I think I would lean a little bit towards LeBron James and Anthony Davis just because they seem like a more organic fit because you have the one primary creator in LeBron uh, to just go with. Anthony Davis, who is a defensive monster, even though some of the on-off metrics with the Lakers paint him as a fuzzy impact player there this year. And then with Luka and Jokic, 
it seems like that would be an offensive dream. You know, Nikola Jokic can play pick and pop with him all day. Is there some overlap because Jokic is kind of used to running the offense himself? Yes, but neither of these players is incapable of operating off the ball. So there should be able to to be some synergy there. I just think that LBJ and AD are the more they, they are the cleaner, more balanced fit. And that's that's the pairing I would go with in this scenario. That being said, I would pay so much money to see uh, Luka Doncic and Nikola Jokic team up in games that matter. So uh, fr- fr- from me, that, that's my response there. Our next question comes from Frederick Brandt, Twitter handle at Fred the Pet. Judging by the dunks he's been able to perform, even though he hasn't won, in parentheses, robbed, is Aaron Gordon the GOAT of the dunk contest? I think for me, the answer is yes. I hope this isn't a ton of recency bias. I know we have MJ uh, winning two dunk contests, Neek winning two dunk contests. They had some spectacular smashes. Uh, Vince Carter in 2000 arguably saved the dunk contest um, during that time or or reinvented it in, in some way. Zach Levine probably deserves to be mentioned here as well, but just looking at you know, two of the three dunk contests that Aaron Gordon has been involved in. To me, he should have won both of them, but the dunks that he's come up with, uh, they've been absolutely spectacular. I'll never forget just the one of him, you know, between the legs over um, the Magic's mascot in 2016. The fact that he pulled Taco Fall out of the crowd and that this wasn't scripted, it obviously wasn't because no one knew that there was going to be a tie between him and Derek Jones Jr. in the final round. That stuff really just in the moment, again, maybe this is recency bias because I wasn't alive for the Michael Jordan uh, dunk contest or Dominique Wilkins dunk contest. Just watching those, those are going to be committed to my memory forever. And so he is my dunk contest goat, which is so bizarre to say because he doesn't have a single dunk contest title to his name right now. Moving right along, this question is from Twitter user Nick, explanation point. At NPINTO628, who has a brighter future? DeAndre Ayton, Bam Adebayo, Wendell Carter Jr., or Jaron Jackson Jr.? This is was a really tough question, and I, I thought a lot about it before I began recording. I think, for me, this is a toss-up between Bam Adebayo and Jaron Jackson Jr. When I tend to look at who's going to be most valuable out of a group of players, I'm trying to find one that can be more than a complementary piece on the offensive end, uh, I, I think that Bam Adebayo is my ultimate pick here because what Jaron Jackson Jr. does is super valuable. He spaces the floor in a way that uh, Bam Adebayo does not, and frankly, uh, in ways that uh, Ayton and Wendell Carter Jr. do not right now either. But he's he a lot of his offense just comes within the flow of everything, and there's value in that. But what is is there a path to him really leading these offensively charged lineups when he doesn't have a primary playmaker around him. The Grizzlies haven't given him that type of responsibility just yet. Whereas with Bam, the Heat are still not great offensively when he plays without Jimmy Butler, but he's bringing the ball up the court. He can operate from face-up positions. He can pass from from all over the floor. It, It is closer, I think, than maybe people are talking about now, if they're talking about this at all, to be fair just because the range for Jaron Jackson Jr. definitely matters, and Bam Adebayo isn't in the habit of, of shooting threes yet. So if he can increase his range, that would be a biggie. But I, I think there's a much clearer path to him spearheading offensive lineups on his own as a focal point, as the primary creator, um, than Jaron Jackson Jr., or for that matter, Wendell Carter Jr. and DeAndre Ayton right now. I think you also have to look at his defense. He's not 
this traditional top-notch rim protector, which can maybe be a little bit of a problem since he is undersized for the center position. At the same time, this guy just moves his feet uh, with incredible speed, and, and he can't be mismatched off the floor uh, if you go small because he, he can he can cover basically anybody when he's in space. Just go watch. Watch any Heat game, and you'll see it a few times per contest. There's there's definitely film of it when if you go and you want to look on YouTube or something. The way that Adebayo moves his feet and can keep basically anyone in front of him, it, it's absolutely amazing. Now, our next question comes from a Twitter user, uh, Ben Simmons, Defensive Player of the Year. His question, uh, spoiler alert, is, is is Ben Simmons this year's Defensive Player of the Year? I'm going to say no, and this I'm not really priding this answer on the fact that the Sixers have been better defensively when Simmons is off the floor, uh, and, I'm, and the fact that, you know, Opponents are shooting better basically from every area on the court when Simmons is in the game. I do feel like there's probably a lot of noise there. He does have a case. I think he probably makes an all-defense team this year. I haven't gone through that for myself just yet, uh, so I, I would have to go more deeply and look there. He is, however, one of the most versatile defenders in the NBA, if not the most versatile defender in the NBA. When you look at the positions that he spends time guarding, um, Krishna Narsu of Nylon Calculus has a, a metric where he measures defensive versatility, and Simmons easily grades out as one of the most versatile defenders in that exercise. Uh, Krishna Narsu also has uh, this metric that measures how much time players are spending on opposing number one options on defense. And Ben Simmons is, again, basically the highest volume number one option defender. There's just so much that he can do, and he's an absolute monster. I ultimately think that Joel Embiid's more important there. You just look at how teams avoid really attacking the rim when he's in the game. Uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo would be ahead of him on my ballot as well. Uh, the fact that he Giannis Antetokounmpo has he he's extremely versatile as well, and he's been getting more reps at center this year, during which time the Bucks have been good defensively and and just offensively as well. He has essentially among rotation players, the largest defensive rating net swing in the league, which is flabbergasting, if only because the Bucks are so good defensively without him. And so this isn't a Rudy Gobert type situation, who would probably also be ahead of Ben Simmons for me right now in Defensive Player of the Year. Uh, but anyway, where the Jazz are bad with Rudy Gobert off the floor. It's not, to, that's not a knock against Rudy Gobert, but it's easier to help your team dramatically improve when they're bad without you. And in Giannis's case, he's making an already sturdy uh, defense, or at least already sturdy defensive returns, that much better when he gets on the floor. It's just harder to improve a defense that's already good than it is to improve a defense that's, that's bad without you, is sort of uh, my stance there. Our next question comes from Fiondu Cabangeli Superfan. That's a fantastic Twitter handle. At JJ... A-Y-C-U-H-B. Their question, who is the most overrated player in the NBA? I couldn't come up with maybe a concrete answer for this. I will say it's not D'Angelo Russell or Brent Simmons. I think those might be some popular answers at this point. Simmons is arguably underrated because of the time that we spend focusing on the absence of a jump shot, just what he can do defensively. He's one of the best passers in the league, and he is good at uh, at finishing, even though defenses already know where he's going to go. He can just have some sane conversions around the rim every game. D'Angelo Russell, 
I think a lot of people do overrate him, but we I don't think enough emphasis is being placed on what he can do when he's a pick-and-roll ball handler and then just the degree of difficulty on some of his shots. You Some teams would kill for reliable shot makers that, that can fire off the dribble threes and, and create some space even though they're not blessed with an insane, an insane amount of athleticism. I thought at the time of the Andre Godala trade that people were not really privy to how valuable Jay Crowder was in the sense that they were overrating him. And maybe over the past couple of years, I just don't think people realize he's been shooting so poorly from three. Been playing well through his first few appearances with the Heat. I, I don't know if I'd pick him. There does seem to be the largest variance in the way that Kyle Kuzma's value is viewed around the league. If you were proposing hypothetical trades before the deadline, Lakers fans would kill you if you gave up Kuzma without getting a star in return. And I do think there's a ton of value in having someone who's so comfortable operating on the ball. And he's improved defensively, it seems like, over the past, uh, since last season, just as a, as a positional defender. That being said, he really hasn't shined as a complimentary offensive piece. And that's a little bit of a problem because you want guys who can sort of shimmy between the two roles. There's Aaron Gordon is one who stands out for me. I don't, I'd be hesitant to pick him as the most overrated player in the NBA just because of what he can do defensively, but I, I just don't see uh, the clear fit for him anywhere on the offensive end, aside from a finisher um, around the rim and, and, in, and in transition. I just haven't seen that extra level or two from him offensively uh, during his time in the NBA. And so this is kind of a cop-out. It's an interesting exercise. I don't really enjoy talking about overrated players all that much, but those would be a few names that stand out to me. I'm going to make this our final question, and it comes from Twitter user Pierre, at Pierre underscore unique. His question is, top five point guards of the past decade. This is clearly a subjective exercise. For me, I went with Steph at one, CP3 at two, Russell Westbrook at three, Damian Lillard at four, and I struggle to choose between Kyle Lowry or Kyrie Irving as number five. I think you have to go with Kyrie Irving almost. Uh, he does have the higher individual ceiling as a player than Lowry, and he hit one of the biggest shots in NBA Finals history in 2016. Uh, but when you look at what Lowry's done defensively during his time in the NBA and just the amount of effort he gives and how he's shape-shifted his role uh, for so many iterations of, of the Raptors team now, when you look at going from playing with DeMar to Kawhi to, to now Pascal Siakam and Marcus Gasol and just this ragtag bunch of, of Raptors Toronto has now. I think he does have a strong case to be five. For reference, I, I basically did for the decade from the 2010 to 11 season through this season. That's just what I looked at when I was trying to find numbers. I do think there's a case to have CP3 number one, even though Stephen Curry headlined that Warriors dynasty. This isn't a perfect metric for everything, but Chris Paul over the past decade leads the NBA in win shares per 48 minutes. And that's just really telling when it's um, not that cumulative advanced metric. He's been an absolute beast. And I know that he doesn't have a ring. I know he's had some uh, playoff failures, but they almost always haven't fallen on him specifically. Injuries have hurt, but he showed out when he's been in the postseason. My five, though, it's look, the four, they're entrenched for me. Stephen Curry, Chris Paul, Russell Westbrook, Damian Lillard, Kyle Lowry and Kyrie Irving, though, I, I think there might be a case to start talking about that. Irving, again, is just so so much better as an individual scorer, but when you look at just Kyle Lowry's plug-and-play value for so many really good teams and just the amount of effort he gives you on defense at times, sacrificing his body to take charges, 
And then you just look at all the injuries that Kyrie Irving has had too. I, I just think there's more of a case there. I'm actually going to throw in another question here because uh, what the hell? I, I think I'm running pretty okay on time, which is a first for for this podcast. This question, and it will be the final one, comes from Abe Tawari. Apologies if I mispronounce your name. Twitter handle at A-B-H-A-T-I-W-A-R-C-O-O-L. The question is, should the Warriors trade for Jonathan Isaac and Aaron Gordon? They can offer the Magic, Andrew Wiggins, this year's first-round pick, and Jordan Poole. They can also include Kyle Bowman and more picks, a second-rounder, a first-rounder, if they want to. This is, I think I saw something to the effect of would it make sense for the Warriors to give up this pick, this year's pick in an Aaron Gordon trade, or uh, bopping around Twitter close to the trade deadline, so it's not completely random. I would lean toward no I haven't done a ton of research on this draft. I just know what I've read, and most of the experts are not incredibly high on this year's class. And giving up a top five pick, that's a pretty steep opportunity cost. At the same time, if you're also getting off Wiggins' money, I think you could consider it. My issue would be Aaron Gordon is not a great shooter. The same for Jonathan Isaac. Uh, What's he going to look like coming back from this left knee injury? They're both sort of defensive monsters, and so you pair them with Draymond Green and then have Klay Thompson and Stephen Curry on the court. That really is a recipe for contention. But the spacing all of a sudden become an issue. You know that Thompson and Curry are going to hit their shots, but can you rely on Gordon and Jonathan Isaac to hit those wide-open threes? Draymond Green has already proved untrustworthy since 2016 to do that. And so there are just so many questions there. And now you get into the issue of Jonathan Isaac is going to be extension eligible this summer. So you'll have all these players. There'll be a year, uh, at least one, where all of these five guys are making a ton of money. I, I'm a, I know I said no to begin with, but I, I think there's a an argument to talk yourself into it. I, I'm just not sure what I would do. I don't know if the Magic should even accept that, do they do Do they view Andrew Wiggins as an asset? That's that's the biggie here. Is I don't view the final three years of his deal, uh, roughly $94.4 million, as anything close to a net positive. And so I know that he can create his own offense from scratch, but what are the Magic saying about their direction if they give up Isaac and Gordon for a future draft pick and then Wiggins, who is already in his second contract, overpaid, been in the league for six years, will be going on seven next year. That's interesting. I, I think, as far as a verdict goes, that the Warriors might need to include something else in this deal, which might just speak to how much of a defensive impact player Jonathan Isaac was before his left knee injury. I, I, I don't know. Uh, it's Maybe it's something that'll be broached over the offseason, but it's not as much of a no-brainer no as I thought, and it's not because the Warriors shouldn't be giving up this year's presumably top five pick. That That's not the reason this would be a no. I, I I honestly think that they're the team that would be making out here, though I would have just playoff offensive concerns. They'll do fine in the regular season if Steph and Clay are healthy, but I, I would have playoff offensive concerns. That's going to do it for me on this episode. Uh, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe this podcast on Twitter. Follow us at Hardwood Knox. Follow Andy at Andrew D. Bailey. I am at Dan Favalli. And please, as always, follow... Blue Wire on Twitter at Blue Wire Pods. Until next time, I leave you with a shout out to Kyle Anderson and what the hell I'm feeling generous for Andy. Shout out to Benno Udry. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. 
legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history, relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.